Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. morning. It is Thursday, the 26th of August, and the clock is ticking in Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, U.S. diplomats have warned American citizens uh, early this morning to immediately leave several gates that lead into the airport following what one U.S. official called a, quote, very specific threat stream from a branch of ISIS. Um, So the U.S. has warned that ISIS-K, which is you know, one variety among many of uh, of ISIS in the region. Um, and remember, ISIS is really a, dis- a group of people that describes themselves as an, as an Islamic state, but it's not a state in the way we understand it. Um, they are a sworn enemy of the Taliban. The Taliban, obviously, the, um, and, you know, what we have described as a terrorist group now in charge of the nation of Afghanistan. Uh, and ISIS-K wants to sow further chaos or mayhem at the airport and is certainly capable of carrying out those attacks. The Taliban's new rule in Afghanistan has raised all kinds of fears of the revival of al-Qaeda and ISIS and other terrorist ent- entities both in Afghanistan and throughout the region. Um, and it's not just the U.S. governments that are issuing these kinds of statements. Both the Brits and the Australian governments uh, issued similar statements this morning of a, quote, ongoing and high threat of terror attack in the region, specifically at the gates of the airport. Um, we have a colorful description this morning from a former Army Ranger who served in Afghanistan. His name is uh, Jericho Denman. He is serving as a volunteer Uh, working with other veterans to get former Afghan colleagues and their families out of the country. Here is his description uh, in the New York Post this morning of what is happening at the gates at the uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul. Now, he is making an analogy here to trying to pick up a date. So just know that when I read the opening line. Uh, Jericho says, It's like trying to pick up someone who doesn't speak your language out of a crowd of a, let's just say he uses an adjective I'm not going to repeat to you, death metal concert at Madison Square Garden. And the concert is at triple capacity and only one door is open and the place is on fire. He goes on to say, I'm not a religious person, but the word that comes to mind is biblical. And I want to pause right there for just a moment. Um. This is a former U.S. Army Ranger on the ground in Afghanistan seeking to get former colleagues and their families out of the country. And he says of himself, "Um, I am not a religious person, but the word that comes to mind is biblical. Why is it that that word would come to mind and what does that word mean in this context? That is a place where you can get God 
into the conversation today. That is a place where you can take the mayhem that exists and the chaos that exists and say somehow in some way God is still revealing himself. And why do I say that? Because this this guy describes himself as specifically not religious, and yet the word that comes to mind is biblical. How does that word come to mind if not by some impression of the Holy Spirit on the heart and mind of a person? How does the word biblical come to mind? How does the Bible come to mind? How does the Bible intrude on what's happening? How does God, the God of order and the God of beauty and the God of truth and the God of creation, how does God press himself into chaos? Biblically. Now, I suppose that for a non-religious former army ranger, the word biblical is not a positive term. I suspect he means by that um, the the few handful of things that non-religious people know about the Bible or know are in the Bible. And maybe uh, he is thinking there about um, the flood of Noah, uh, the days of Noah. Maybe he is thinking about something, uh, you know, biblical proportions. When you hear a weather person, uh, a meteorologist describe a flood or a, a rain event as of biblical proportions, they're pointing to the flood in the days of Noah. Anyway, I just lift it up to you um, because I think it's an opportunity to get God back into the conversation today. Uh, among the Americans currently stranded, there is an article today uh, out of San Diego that there are 24 students and 16 parents from San Diego who were visiting the region who now have no way out. So we're not just talking here about um, folks who've been serving in NGOs and former Army Rangers. We're talking about regular people who are trying to get back to school in San Diego. All right, Ben Johnson is waiting in the wings. We'll be right back. This is my right, a right given by God to live a free life, to live in freedom. Ben Johnson is back. You can find him at dailywire.com. Hey, Ben. Good morning, Carmen. It's National Dog Day. I'm just letting you know. In case you didn't know what today was, today is National Dog Day. Do you have a dog? Well, glory to, glory to God for dogs. I wish I, wish I could uh, due to uh, allergies in the house when I'm allowed to, mm. but uh, I love dogs. All right. Well, my four dogs and I will celebrate National Dog Day um, and, and be a little bit sad that you don't get to have a dog. Okay. So um, everybody in America is going to get to have something because the House has approved a $3.5 trillion with a T budget blueprint that I would describe as seeking to utterly remake the American economy. What is going on? Well, you're right. And what, uh, what most Americans are going to get is a lot of debt. Uh, this is $3.5 trillion, as you mentioned. Uh, it's, a, it's a blueprint and an outline. It's not the actual budget itself. So it's the top line of what uh, they believe they're going to pass, but it doesn't have all of the dots, uh, all of the I's dotted and the T's crossed. So we get that later on. But uh, part of this, just uh, it, to to uh, set the stage, of course, they passed the infrastructure bill uh, in the Senate. So the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the smaller one that actually has money for bridges and roads, uh, that's about a trillion dollars. It's enormous in itself. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said that bill is not going to pass 
except in in unless this bill passes as well. So, you know, she's she's making sure that uh, whatever it is that people want, if they want money for roads and bridges and very popular projects, they have to vote for all of this, which she's calling human infrastructure, which, as you said, is actually radically remaking things. Uh, this is three point five trillion dollars in spending billions. $726 billion of it is for what they call universal pre-K, which is daycare for three- and four-year-olds, uh, for people who are, uh, of course, uh, young children. People with young children will be able to send their kids to daycare, and uh, this will have new uh, regulations for daycare. Now, if you look at all of the battles that we have had over the last year, over the content of what's being taught in public schools, whether your children get to go to public schools, and uh, a lot of the pitched and uh, often insolent debating that's going on, on on both sides, but often by those who are on public school boards uh, in school districts in the way that they have treated the people whose children they're educating. Can you imagine bringing that down to the level of a three- or four-year-old and having that kind of indoctrination taking place? This is part of uh, what this will pave the way for. Uh, it also gets the federal government involved in the raising of children uh, You know, in terms of uh, of the uh, child tax credit, we saw that uh, during this past year, uh, just beginning in the last few months, every everyone who has children virtually is getting a check from the government as an advance on the child tax credit. That's going to continue. So it's very much like a European economy, where if you have children, the government is giving you money uh, for those children. And it, it sets up the government essentially as a substitute provider for children. Uh, this is what's happened in the 1960s. It destroyed the inner city home. It destroyed the, the uh, uh, in terms of welfare recipients. And this is not going to help when it comes to uh, the rest. Uh, also, we're talking about community college, uh, as well as uh, um, $100 billion toward uh, changing immigration status, uh, billions upon billions of dollars, uh, including trying to expand home ownership, which is what led to the 2008 recession. Uh, where where people who uh, were probably should not have been qualifying for home loans were in were just handed home loans, and then uh, when they couldn't pay them back, all of us were sitting there and uh, ending up holding the bill, and it uh, put so many banks out of business. They decided they want to loosen that credit once again. So uh, you have you have that amount of spending on these kinds of priorities. Uh, the pro life protections are not included in this. So we're talking about federal funding for abortion being incorporated uh, sub rosa within this. Uh, There's absolutely no inclusion of uh, a lot of pro-life measures in this. And then you've got a lot of funding for the so-called Green New Deal being smuggled in. So it really is radically reforming the country. And and I guess the only other thing that I would throw in is over the last year, the government has spent $6.6 trillion already. This is $3.5 trillion in addition to another trillion infrastructure bill, and uh, this is certainly not even the full agenda of what uh, people want to do in terms of spending. Six, $6.6 trillion is uh, more than Richard Nixon spent, inflation-adjusted, his entire presidency, and he was fighting Vietnam. So this is, this is a massive amount of irresponsible big government spending that gets the government involved in raising your children – gets the government involved in providing for your children, uh, and gets the government involved in radically restructuring every segment of the economy. It's uh, something that if we had a responsible leadership uh, that cared whatever about the fiscal health of this country, 
they would say no to. In the Bible, we believe that the the lender, uh, the borrower is the slave to the lender, and ultimately this price tag is going to come calling. All right, I want to talk um, more about the borrower being the slave to the lender and the percentage of people in America who actually pay federal income taxes and those who don't, because I think that's where this conversation goes next. Ben Johnson and I are going to take a very brief break, and then we'll be right back. You ain't nothing but a All right, continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson. He's a media reporter for The Daily Wire. You can find what he's writing at dailywire.com. You can find him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. Ben, um, 61% of people in the United States of America pay zero federal income taxes. Um, and when you arrive at that point where some percentage of the population is benefiting and a different group of people is paying for all of those benefits, um, you got you got a real challenge in your culture. So let's talk about what I'm going to describe as this, you know, I mean, this is an attempt by the government to basically redistribute wealth from one group of people to another, except that it's not because government programs tend to further impoverish people, not actually create generational wealth. So talk with us about what's going on here. 61% of people pay zero federal income taxes. Oh, that's right. Now, that's an estimate from the Tax Policy Center, which has looked into this year after year. So uh, they, they estimate that almost we're talking about almost two out of three Americans in 2020 did not pay any taxes. Now, that's higher than normal. Uh, the, uh, the typical range is about 48 percent of households and, uh, and and it's higher for single parent households. It's about two thirds. So that's that's more or less in line with uh, single parent households. But 2020, of course, the big issue there is you had so many people who are out of work because of the pandemic. They were shut out of work, and so they had no income to tax. Uh, there was nothing for the government to take from them. And then you had those rounds of stimulus checks. Uh, those were designed as uh, what's, what's known as a refundable tax credit. So that reduces the amount of tax that you pay, and then you get a check on top of it from the government. And uh, then you get to um, the way that they changed, for example, child tax credits, like we were talking about in the previous segment, earned income tax credits. There were several different tax credits, all of which were expanded over the last year. Now, most of those provisions are supposed to expire next year. So people believe that we'll return to normal uh, when we when we go forward in the year 2022. This year is still going to have a large percentage of non-taxpayers. Now, Usually you think as, as uh, someone uh, uh, on, uh, on the right, you think that's wonderful. Fewer people are paying taxes. It would be wonderful if we also had a concomitant reduction in spending. That's, that's where we don't. We have a completely irresponsible federal budget where we're going trillions upon trillions of dollars in debt, much of it to China. And uh, you have a large, growing federal budget with a shrinking tax base. That's completely unsustainable. But the bigger problem is what it does to our democracy, what it does to uh, the Republican structures that were put in place, uh, lowercase r, lowercase d, put in place by our Constitution and our founding fathers. The idea was always very simple, that if, if one group of people pays 
for all the programs and another group of people receives all the government programs, it's pretty obvious to see you're dividing the American people. And at some point, the government begins expropriating wealth from one, pe- from group, one group of people and promising all that wealth to someone else. It's a redistribution of wealth. It sets up political warfare. It sets up political divisions within our society that can be exploited by demagogues and politicians who want to expand the welfare state. And the welfare state is not good for anyone. It's not good for those who pay for it. It's not good for those who receive it. Uh, we've seen study after study say that it brings out the very worst. It increases health issues, increases health problems, increases addictions, and it does not sustain young people. It destroys families, and that's really the greatest problem. So when you have this kind of a setup where one group of people is paying the bills, one group of people is receiving all the rest, and a politician is standing in between saying, let's you and him fight, that's a, that's a plan for the economic and social destruction of the United States. Mm. Well, that's a bright and sunny forecast. Um, right. All right. But, um, I mean, we, we, we can always hope the better, the better angels of our nature will come through. We'll understand we're one American people and that uh, you know, we should have limits on government to make sure that uh, this kind of thing can't happen, which is what the founding fathers put in place. But, you know, the Constitution is only as strong as those of us who stand up for it and enforce it. And uh, ultimately, it falls to those of us who are in the church to say we have a better model of taking care. When, when these programs fall through, it's the church that steps in and says, here's how uh, we can help you improve your life. Here's our 12-step program. Here's how we can help you get into a job training program and get you back to work. And we can give you something much more important, which is spiritual values that will sustain you permanently will save your soul but will give you the ability to walk forward and face adversity and overcome it all right we have um we have a friend named uh gay checking in um and it's a national dog day report and so um you and i are going to conclude our conversation by uh celebrating with um with gay harris he says um uh Four weeks ago, I took in 11 orphaned four-week-old puppies. Their mother was hit by a car and killed. My grandchildren are helping me. Our best guess is they are German Shepherd Husky Pitbull mix. Four of them are spoken for, so my math is bad, but 11 minus four means there's still lots of puppies. Um, I've never fostered any animals before, so this is quite a challenge, but I love dogs. Uh, more than anybody in the world, and when I was a little girl, oh, sorry, gay is a girl, not a boy. Sorry about that, gay. Um, uh, I prayed to God that when I grew up, I could have a bunch of puppies, and 70 years later, my prayer was answered. So there you go. Keep, keep, keep praying the prayers of your childhood. Just because you haven't received yet, it, it, it just means that God is getting you ready to Moses spent 40 years in the desert before he got called to lead these people to the promised land, and then another 40 in the desert. So this uh, this is fantastic that uh, her childhood dream is coming true. Glory to God. I love it. Well, Anne, you know, when she was a little girl praying this prayer, she was probably not in a position to take in 11 puppies. But now, right, she is in a position mm-hmm. to, you know, to to do something that she was not in a position to do then. So I just love it. I love it. I love that her grandkids are involved. I love that four of these puppies are already spoken for. Um, Let me see. For those of you who are now going to try to enlist me in the puppy adoption process, uh, Gay lives in the 218 area code. So Duluth, Superior, there are puppies available in your region. Oh, in my, in my, oh. I just, yeah. 
Go ahead. I, I just typed it into my calculator. That means there are seven left. Seven. Yeah. See, see, I was going to try to do it on my fingers, but then people would hear me. Like, I guess the counting on my finger. I know. It's terrible. Terrible. All right, Ben, as always, thank you so much. It's such a delight. You guys need to be reading what Ben is writing at dailywire.com. You can also follow him on Twitter. He's the rights writer. We love talking with you every Thursday. Thank you so much, my friend. Pleasure's all mine. God bless. We'll be right back. The perfect puppy to always be right by my side. All right. Uh, how many Americans are reading the Bible every day? How would you answer that question? Are you reading the Bible every day? Well, are you engaging with and reading the Bible once a week, once a month, handful of times a year? The American Bible Society started asking those questions, and uh, it is all contained in the State of the Bible Report. And we're going to talk with John Plake about some of the things they have discovered in the 2021 State of the Bible Report. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Do you have many battles in your home? Are there bunkers built up throughout the house? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. You may find that the frequency and intensity of scuffles are increasing in your home. I'd encourage you to think about the hills you're dying on. What issues have the greatest consequences? What battles, if you lose, will also cause you to sacrifice a relationship? And what battles will eventually pass? Once you've answered these questions, adjust what you fight back about. Mom, Dad, choose your battles wisely and carefully. On the essential, non-negotiable stuff, don't budge one inch. On the non-essentials, show a little grace and mercy. Find more parenting help from Mark Gregston at ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. He put that Joining me now, John Plake from the American Bible Society. We're going to talk today about the state of the Bible report, and we're going to invite you to read some of the opening chapters related to the state of the Bible report, and you can do so at stateofthebible.org. John, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So this is the 11th annual State of the Bible Report, and you're highlighting all kinds of cultural trends in the U.S. regarding spirituality and scripture engagement. Maybe give us, um, you know, what what is the top line related to the report, and then what specifically are we going to hone in on today? Sure. Well, it'll come as no surprise to any of our listeners that over the past year, we've had quite a once-in-a-century experience that we've all had together. And so we've seen the pandemic, we've seen significant political and social unrest, but our research is showing that Americans are really beginning to find hope and building resilience through the Bible. In fact, one of the most heartening things is to see that uh, in 2021, in January of 2021, we measured that 181 million Americans say they opened their Bible in the last year, and that's among American adults. And that's a significant increase from previous years. I think the year before it was 169 million. And so we always like to see that number going up. 
But we also noticed that there are a lot more Americans than ever who are kind of test driving the Bible. They're getting into the Bible maybe for the first time. They might not be deeply engaged in scripture, but they're opening it up and they're looking for hope and help as they face some very challenging times. Well, I think that, uh, you know, as you say, it wouldn't surprise us who turn to the Bible each and every day um, for, you know, our sustenance, like the the way, the lens through which we're going to interpret the events of our lives and the world. It wouldn't be a surprise to us that people would turn there um, looking looking for hope. But when they turn there, you know, what they find, right, is part of, I think, the question that we're all going to seek to ask here, um, because the perspective that they come with. So, you know, maybe we look specifically at a generation. I know that chapter five in the report um, from the State of the Bible is focused on Gen Z. When we look at a particular generation and how they are engaging with the Bible today, what do we see? Well, we do see really significant differences across generations. If we sort of take a step back to remember when millennials were what everybody was talking about, and in fact, there was quite a bit of hand-wringing over the faith perspectives of the millennial generation. One of the things that we noticed is that as millennials have grown older, they've begun to more deeply engage with their faith than they did before. So just a little backdrop there. Now we turn our attention to Generation Z. For those who don't know those age breakdowns, the oldest members of Gen Z are 24 this year. And so they're from 24 on down to the age of nine. We looked at Gen Z adults, ages 18 to 24, And then we also looked at some Gen Z youth who were ages 15 to 17. And one of the things that we noticed is that Gen Z is really struggling. They report the highest levels of stress of any generation in America, the highest levels of trauma of any generation in America, and at the same time, the lowest levels of hope of any generation in America. And so we're challenged by that to look at, well, how are they doing with overall well-being? So we used Harvard University's wonderful bit of research on well-being called the Human Flourishing Scale. And it looks at flourishing life or the good life, if you will, across five key dimensions, happiness and life satisfaction, mental and physical health, meaning and purpose in life, character and virtue, and then the presence of close social relationships. In every one of those domains, Gen Z youth are significantly lower than anybody else. And so what that tells us is if you just look at the data, Gen Z youth, these 15 to 17-year-olds, are by comparison relatively unhappy, unhealthy, they're aimless, conflicted, and lonely. And that's pretty bleak as a starting Mm. point for what's going on in their lives. Also, I would say, though, for those of us who recognize that as Christian adults in the culture today, as a part of the church, the body of believers, you know, in America— also a really great opportunity, right? I mean, we know that they're searching for identity, belonging, and purpose, and we know that all of those are found in Christ, and we know that the Scripture bear, you know, authentic witness to who He is. So Scripture engagement, it would seem, with this generation is essential. I mean, we actually know that God offers the answers to the questions they're asking about themselves and everything else. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking for the silver lining in some of the bad news, I think when we look at members of Gen Z who are deeply engaged with Scripture, well, the picture is completely different. If they're deeply engaging with God's Word and they're involved in a vibrant Christian community, the story is fundamentally different. The challenge, I think, for parents 
and for people who are involved in youth ministry and people who care about young adults and emerging adults is that um, Gen Z disproportionately has disengaged from church during COVID-19. So we saw a 15% decrease in church participation, and that's both in person and online among Gen Z, a 7% decrease among millennials, and actually within the margin of error, slight increases perhaps for Gen X and boomers. Um, So while Gen X and boomers and, and even elders to a certain degree were kind of holding steady, the younger two generations were kind of pulling away from those things that were really going to give them hope and help. And I think that is an opportunity for us to re-engage with Gen Z and to say, there is a place for you here. We want to be answering your questions. We want to help you connect with God through scripture and through a great faith community. We're talking with John Plake from the American Bible Society. We're talking about the most recent State of the Bible report, which you can uh, read the beginning chapters of at stateofthebible.org. We'll return to this conversation in just a moment. Jesus does me this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones can belong. Right, returning now to our conversation with John Plake from the American Bible Society. We are um, looking at some trends and some outcomes of the State of the Bible report. You can find it at stateofthebible.org. Dot O-R-G. So, John, one of the things I'm focusing here in, again, on, on Chapter 5 of the report about Generation Z or Gen Z, um, over half of Gen Z youth indicate they have not yet made a commitment to Jesus, um, but they do say they're interested. Like, there's an openness to the Bible. There's a—they wish they read their Bible more. It seems as if, you know, if we could find a way to come alongside young people and share Scripture with them, that there is just this, there is an openness and an opportunity. I think you're absolutely right, Carmen. You know, only one-third of Gen Z youth qualify as Bible users. And, and that's not a very, you know, high bar to be able to clear. It's only reading the Bible on your own three to four times a year or more. Um, So that's only one-third of Gen Z youth compared to 50% of all American adults. Um, So 43% of Gen Z adults are Bible users, 49% of millennials, etc. So when we look at their relationship with the Bible, we see that their behavior is really not solid yet. And we've done some other research among college and university students. And what we've noticed is that there are two key things that are lacking among young adults in this age bracket, in this emerging adulthood stage. And the the first thing that they're missing is the kind of spiritual practices that will really sustain them over their lifetime. They're in a time of transition where they're trying to figure out, well, how do I make the faith of our fathers my faith? And how do I make it important in my life? How do I connect deeply with God through scripture and through Christian community? So not only do they not have a great relationship with the Bible, they don't necessarily have people in their lives who are deeply committed to scripture, who can help them see the way, who can kind of serve as mentors for them, but they're looking for it. So overwhelmingly, they are open to what the Bible has to say. They simply don't know what the Bible has to say. And so one of our findings was they're the sort of undecided Gen Z. Uh, They don't strongly agree or strongly disagree with much of anything around faith, around the Bible, or around Christian values. Instead, they're kind of in the middle, and they're at that place where I think if we come alongside and help them, 
we can guide them well to make good decisions and draw closer to God. John, let's um, let's back up a little bit in uh, earlier in uh, in the book. And again, we're talking about the state of the Bible report from the American Bible Society. You can find what we're discussing today at stateofthebible.org. Um, you lead off with, you know, the trends that we're seeing in 2021 and then this conversation about finding the new normal. Love for you to touch on that and then take us into the conversations about hope and the good life. Sure. Well, I think, as we said at the top of the show, uh, you know, we've got 95 million Americans who are now test driving the Bible or they're looking to the Bible for hope and for wisdom. And that segment of Americans has grown significantly over the past three years. In fact, it's up by something like 80 percent in four years. So it's really getting much bigger. When we look at the new normal, what we're really talking about is the impact that COVID-19 and then a lot of social and political unrest has had on people. And roughly half of respondents, regardless of whether they attend church in person or online or both, they're strongly agreeing church services increase their sense of connection to God. So people want to be connected to their Christian faith communities. And we love to see that at times of disruption, people turn to God and they don't just turn to God in some vain hope, but actually they, they develop hope. We looked at people who were highly traumatized. We looked at people who were enduring tremendous stress. And the one thing that was consistent throughout was that when they turned to God's word, they actually found hope. Their hope scores went up. Their stress symptoms were uh, maybe persisting in their life, but they didn't experience that as the end of their story. Instead, they realized that God was bringing them through those great challenges. And so we, again, used Harvard University's study on human flourishing. And what we discovered was that people who are connected to God's word overall are experiencing the good life. They're flourishing. They have great, deep relationships. Uh, They have a sense of meaning and purpose in their life. Um, They are um, connected to places where they can kind of give back They have mental and physical health that they rate higher than others do. And they see themselves as someone that God can use, as a kind of an honorable person, someone who's um, contributing to all that's going on around them. So we're really excited to see that even when we use measures that weren't designed to look at faith, they were designed by social scientists to look at, you know, what people who have a variety of faith backgrounds might consider to be good things, people who are connected to God's word really spending consistent time in it. And people who are connected to a vibrant Christian community are just scoring better than everybody else. And that is so encouraging because I know in my life, when I have faced struggles and they come at different times in life, when you become a new parent, you get married, you go through transitions, you experience grief, all of those times present challenges to us. And what we've found is that for so many Americans, God's word isn't just a historical book or some ancient bit of wisdom, but it's actually life-giving to them today. They lean on it, and they actually find that their hope for a brighter tomorrow increases, and they ultimately experience that brighter tomorrow. So, John, you're the Director of Ministry Intelligence for the American Bible Society, and that sounds like kind of a cool job. Are you, You're like an intelligence officer. It's an insanely cool job, but let me tell you where it comes from. Uh, Really, 
people who are involved in church kinds of ministry, as I've been for over 30 years, they speak a kind of language that is the language of ministry and the language of the Bible. Social scientists speak another kind of language, the language of data and numbers and statistical tests and those kinds of things. And through the years, God has given me opportunities to learn to speak both of those languages reasonably well. So I tell people, look, if you don't know what ministry intelligence is, our job is to be professional explainers. And we take the world of data and statistics and we explain it to ministry people. We take the world of ministry, we explain it to the data people, and we enrich the conversation of both by using rigorous tools of measurement to be able to give another set of lenses to pastors and church leaders and people who are deeply committed to serving God in their own communities so they can understand what's really going on around them and they can connect the eternal word of God to the ever-changing culture that's around us. So if I'm reading, let's just say, some research finding online, these people now think this and they used to think that. First of all, I have to get beyond the headline because the headline might not actually honestly indicate what the research says. Um, And then, so not just going to be on the headline, but how do I even begin to read sort of all of the data that seems to just be pouring forth all the time from a really wide range of sources? Well, you know, I think one step is to just go to a reputable source, um, to prioritize data from reputable sources. I think one of the things we've tried to do in Maribel Society is to really build our capacity to report deeply and honestly what's going on in the world around faith in the Bible. I think the second thing that I try to look at is, well, what are the questions that are actually being asked? One of the challenges of looking at faith in America is that a lot of the people doing the research hold no particular faith. Consequently, they have no particular insight into the shape of that faith. What are the important questions that people who are Christians are asking in their lives? What are they trying to achieve or accomplish that might be distinct from some other faith or someone who has no particular faith? And so the questions can be thin or shallow, I guess, because they treat all faiths as equal. And I actually think we learn more by treating all faiths as distinct from one another and unique in their own ways. And when we do that, we're able to ask better questions and get more interesting, more valid, and more reliable answers. I guess the third answer to the question is, they're wonderful resources online. Almost anybody can learn to consume research and statistics by looking around on YouTube and saying, well, you know, what does this statistical fact mean? What's a correlation? And and so we have to educate ourselves as consumers of media in America, because the truth is anybody can publish anything they want. And the real tale is told in, well, is it consistent? Um, is it showing valid trends over time? Are they using acceptable tests to come up with their answers and their headlines? And so you're right. The truth is deeper than the headlines. But if you dig, you're going to find that there is a lot to learn, not only from American Bible Society research, but also from some other wonderful research outlets. All right. For free Bible resources and to join the Bible cause, you can visit AmericanBible.org. They've been at this since 1816 at the American Bible Society. And this is the 11th annual State of the Bible Report, which you can 
read in part at stateofthebible.org. Dr. John Plake has been our conversation partner today. Thank you so much, John, for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. It's been my pleasure. Likewise. We'll have you back when, um, you know, when we get more chapters to look at. Thank you so much. We'd love that. All right. We'll be right back. Puppies are cuddly. Puppies are cute. They're never nasty. Paul informs me that the dog days of summer are officially over. Oh, he had to been over for a while. I know. Still feels doggy outside, though. Oh, yeah. uh, today's National Dog Day, so, you know, pet a dog, feed a dog. I don't know. There you go. My dog is in my studio this morning, which is unusual because she's been avoiding the studio, but now she's back. All right. Um, ben Johnson said something earlier that I, I made a note of, and it was this top line. He, he said the top line of what the um, what the Congress has passed, the top line is is this $3.5 trillion. And that got me thinking about the top line and the bottom line and all the lines in between, the line items, right? So eventually we will have a line item budget. But right now we just have a top line. And eventually it will come down to the bottom line. And so I, it got me thinking, um, and again, this was something then that John Stone Street said in today's Breakpoint, show me your budget and I'll show you your values or your priorities. And we tend to think of all of that in terms of finances, the top line, the bottom line, the line items, uh, show me your budget and I'll show you your values. We tend to think of all of that in financial terms. But what if we today, applying the mind of Christ, thought about that in terms of, I don't know, time? How do you budget your time? What's the top line that you're willing to spend on something what's the what what's the bottom line in terms of the end of the day and you look back over your time budget how about all of the line items in between show me your time budget and i'll show you your values you could do the same for like your reading budget how much of your reading budget is dedicated to you know that which is good genuinely good like i don't know the bible The top line of the Bible, the bottom line of the Bible, and all the lines in between, something else we could think about today. The first line of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The last line of the the Bible, maybe the bottom line, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Hey, every line in between is good as well. Top line, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bottom line, Revelation 22, 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. All right. The first hour of Mornings with Carmen is in the books. Peter Kapsner is going to join me in the second hour, as is. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.